Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about world affairs and the people who shape it. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch, and in this show we discuss topical global issues and have in-depth conversations with personalities in foreign policy. Global Dispatches is presented in partnership with Humanity in Action, an international educational organization, and I am a Humanity in Action senior fellow. Tensions are very clearly escalating on the Korean Peninsula, with the North making unrelenting progress on their nuclear and ballistic missile programs and the United States president now overtly threatening a new war. In the meantime, the United Nations Security Council, which of course includes China, the United States, and Russia, passed a new round of sanctions on North Korea intended to force Pyongyang back to the negotiating table. But as of yet, it is unclear if these new sanctions will succeed in that regard. So what are the policy options right now? And if North Korea does succeed in developing the capacity to reliably hit the United States with a nuclear weapon, can it even be deterred from doing so? And what would happen if the United States strikes North Korea first? And what diplomatic options are there to avoid these nightmare scenarios? On the line with me to discuss these questions and more is Dr. Jim Walsh of MIT. He is a nuclear security expert and was my guest in a previous episode of Global Dispatch's podcast where he discussed his life and career and, of course, North Korea. This is obviously a very timely conversation given events of, of recent weeks. It's also the reason that I did not post an episode yesterday. This is Tuesday. Typically, I post episodes on Mondays and Thursdays, but I wanted to make sure to have an episode on the North Korea situation for you guys because I know it's something that you would be interested in hearing. And frankly, I'm very glad that I had this conversation with Jim because I now understand some of the policy options available to deal with North Korea a little more clearly. I'm also somewhat reassured that traditional ideas of deterrence can be applied to the North Korea situation. That is, chances are no one will strike first. If you're new to the podcast, welcome. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to check out our archives, get in touch with me, or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify. We also have a free mobile app that you can download. It's probably the easiest way to access new episodes of the podcast. And now here is my conversation with Jim Walsh of MIT. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Well, for some time, North Korea has been on a path of building its missile capabilities. And in particular, what uh, policymakers in the U.S. have focused on is their growing ability uh, to build a missile that could carry a nuclear weapon that could reach the U.S. homeland. Now, they're not there yet. Uh, there are still some things they would have to do to be able to uh, acquire that capability. What, like miniaturize the, the, the warhead? 
I think they've probably already miniaturized the warhead. That's the view, uh, view of the both the Japanese and the U.S. intelligence community. Oh, I'd say one of the things that remains to be done is they have to uh, be able to build a reentry vehicle that, once having entered space, can withstand the heat and vibrations of reentering the Earth's atmosphere in order to deliver a warhead. Uh, and I would also say there's some gap between doing something one time and uh, doing it with reliability, uh, knowing that uh, it will work 100% of the time. That's what nuclear weapons require from an engineering and from a policy standpoint. They have to be military-grade reliable. You can't be in a position where you order a launch and the launch doesn't happen, or you uh, the missile goes up and then tumbles uh, back down on top of you. Uh, exploding on your own territory. So the, the requirements here, the technical requirements are quite high. So there are some individual capabilities they have to acquire, like reentry vehicles. And then there's even having gotten to that point, uh, then you really got to work to make sure this thing is absolutely perfect, that there are no bugs. Uh, but I think the, the big takeaway, the top line is they're well on their way uh, on that path. And if current conditions hold, then they'll achieve that, you know, sometime in the relatively uh, nearish future. Uh, the and I would just add briefly that our focus, naturally, the American focus, has been on a missile that could reach the U.S. homeland. But they've been working on their all different types of missiles: uh, short range, medium range, moving from liquid fuel to solid fueled, uh, being able to launch missiles mobily so that they can shoot and hide. Uh, rather than be fixed targets. So they've really embarked on a wide array of capabilities uh, to acquire. And what's happened under the young Kim uh, is that he's just increased the pay, uh, pace of testing. You know, mm -hmm. Asia, it's just off the charts. So where we are right now in August at the current pace, I think we will, uh, you know, uh, the young Kim will have tested as much as twice as uh, often this year under President Trump, as has has happened last year under President Obama. And, and, and you know, if you test and test and test and test all the time, you're going to get better. And, and this most recent test uh, did demonstrate an ability, at least in theory, to reach key parts of the United States with a ballistic missile. Is that right? Yeah. So the things that this this last big test uh, demonstrated were that they could build a tube and shoot it a really, really long way. In other words, you know, to, to be an ICBM, you have to, uh, it's not called intercontinental for nothing. You have to demonstrate a range, a flight range that would be long enough to reach the United States. And then you have to uh, demonstrate that you have a uh, missile, which is simply a delivery platform that can hold or carry the weight of a uh a nuclear weapon. And they seem, with this test, uh, the last test, which essentially, rather than shooting it across the globe, what they did is they sort of shot it straight up really, 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 really high. It traveled for something like 47 minutes, which is a long flight time. And then it sort of came straight down. So it was shot at a very high angle uh, so that it uh, would not cross territories and set off all sorts of alarms. But basically, it demonstrated they can shoot a missile a long way. Okay, so so from a policy perspective, um, and I'm I'm very glad to be speaking with you because I've wanted to like talk to an actual nuclear security expert uh, about this for for a long time. But it seems to me that we are entering this 
a position, an unfortunate scenario that no one really wanted to be in, but it seems the most realistic scenario going forward is that the, you know, the, the North will just continue to develop their capabilities. They will eventually get that capability to combine all the things they need to combine to create a military grade, uh, nuclear weapon that could reliably reach the United States. And then we'll be in a position where it'll just be a nuclear deterrence kind of scenario. So I, I what I wanted to ask you is, is there any reason to think that traditional um, norms of, of nuclear deterrence, basically, you know, if you nuke me, I'll nuke you, can't work in this situation? Well, no. The short answer is no. Uh, now, some people have suggested that the North Korean leader is, is crazy. I think most observers, myself included, think he's uh, broadly rational, which is all that's required for simple deterrence to operate. So simple deterrence is no one wants to commit suicide. and if you shoot me, uh, I'll shoot you. And so no one should shoot each other. That's sort of the basic of deterrence. And that's and, worked. You know, there has been no nuclear war you know, yeah, since the I, advent I, of nuclear weapons. I, I would put a gigantic asterisk around that, uh, the size of a very large boulder. Yes, since our own use of nuclear right. weapons against Japan, we have not had a nuclear war. We've had several near misses. And frankly, I know of no human construction, psychological or te technological, that is perfect, that mm -hmm. works all time, for all time, forever and ever, regardless of the frailties of individual leaders, regardless of the, you know, various conditions that, uh, you know, that's, you're entering the world of the religious, uh, where if you believe that deterrence will work forever across all circumstances. Mm -hmm. It has worked rough. It, it is worked roughly uh, so far, and I would say in a beneficial way. I, I am not a fan of nuclear weapons, but I think you have nuclear weapons are part of the equation uh, that explain why we haven't had a, a big world war since World War II. We haven't had a, a, a major war in the, East, uh, in the European front. I think nuclear weapons have contributed to that to some extent, not the only thing, but an, an important contributor. The question is, how long can you live in perfection? before someone makes a mistake. So I think the North Koreans are, are deterrable. I think they're containable. But I think as the as our own president demonstrates, uh, you know, who knows what the future will bring. Uh, uh, so Mike characterized both leaders as impulsive, thin skinned, uh, believing themselves to hold absolute power. Uh, I don't know if that's a good combination. So, so is it is it fair to say though that that deterrence, simple deterrence, is perhaps the safer alternative than a preemptive strike on North Korea's nuclear program, which most experts, and I'd love to talk through this with you, seem to suggest would result in a conventional military artillery attack from the north against the south, killing thousands of people. Um, is is so in that scenario i mean is that the likely scenario of, of from a preemptive us strike on north korea number 1 number 2 is deterrence like a safer alternative to that scenario yes so the answer uh, to both those questions is unequivocally yes there is absolutely no doubt that and it's not a pro i'll do a little bit of technical jargon here uh, lay just, it on me jim <laughs> okay. that's why you're at mit I would expect nothing less. 
Okay, well, good. I won't spend too much time on it, but we often get these terms confused, and, and it's not a big deal, but whatever. So there's this thing called preemption. Preemption is when you know your adversary is just about to attack you. An attack is imminent, and you have high-quality intelligence that leads you to believe that they're going to uh, attack you any minute now, and you strike first before they're able to hit you. That's preemption, and all international law uh, recognizes the right of countries for self-defense. Self yeah, and Article case, 51 of the UN Charter, to get nerdy, right. yeah. Preventive war is not that. Right. So what we're talking about is preventive war, not preemption. There's no evidence that the North Koreans are about to launch anything or do anything against us. We're saying we don't like that you have that capability. We're going to initiate a war against you, even though the there is no evidence of a imminent strike. And so preventive war is not does not have the legal status internationally. And in this case is would be incredibly dangerous. First of all, you're attacking what some people would believe to be a nuclear weapon state, you know, so if you attack a nuclear weapon state and threaten its viability, threaten its existence, then you are running a high risk that they will launch their nuclear weapons against you. Now, let's say we strike first and we, we with the hope of disarming them, of uh, destroying their nuclear weapons. How will we know that we got all of them? And what's to prevent them from building more in the future. So that's just the nuclear piece. You really raise the risk of nuclear war by attacking a nuclear weapon state out of the blue. The other thing, of course, that would happen is if we were lucky and those nuclear weapons it did not escalate to nuclear war, That's this is the lucky scenario. Millions of people die, including 30,000 U.S. soldiers and their families stationed in Seoul and the part of the multi-million population of Seoul, the you know, the country that is the 13th biggest economy, its capital city is within range of those artillery that you refer to. And certainly if we attack uh, them, there's a very high chance that they'll respond with that artillery, mm -hmm. uh, destroying at least part of Seoul. And then we will respond and we will be engaged, as Secretary Mattis has suggested, in a war the likes of which we have not seen since the Korean War, uh, that would be uh, a, a real catastrophe, even if it didn't turn into nuclear war. So, yes, simple deterrence where everyone backs off and no one uh, attacks each other for fear of what will happen to them. That's a more stable outcome uh, and a safer outcome uh, than launching a preventive war. I would add that, that those are, we have other options, too. And I would say one option here is diplomacy. Uh, that might freeze the program. And I think diplomacy with or without deterrence is to be preferred. And if at some point in the future, perhaps in a post-Kim environment, uh, we were to ratchet down or uh, move in a different direction, it would be diplomacy uh, that achieves that accomplishment. I, I guess it seems that the key challenge of, of the diplomatic track right now is that the policy goals and, and of the United States are a denuclearized North Korea, which doesn't seem to be something that North Korea is all that interested in doing. And so far, sanctions, which uh, the newest round were, were passed by the Security Council just uh, just earlier last week, um, have not yet been able to bring them to the, the negotiating table. And it, so, so at least it seems like the current course of diplomacy is not one that, um, that, that seems right for the moment. Let me... Push back on that, my fair moderator. Sure. 
so first of all, I'm the, trying to provoke you, so this is good. Yeah, <laughs> push push back all you'd like. So actually, uh, to the Trump administration's credit, uh, there have been ongoing back channel talks for some months now between it's, it's called the New York Channel between our special representative for North Korea and the North Korean ambassador at the UN. Yeah, uh, and it was those talks, by the way, that. Uh, resulted in Otto Warmbier being returned to the United States. And while that's a tragic, tragic case because of what happened to him, nevertheless, he is here and not still sitting in a prison in North Korea because of uh, negotiations and diplomacy. Now, you are right to say that uh, if there is uh, a negotiation, uh, then uh, our stated policy is for denuclearization, a policy goal that I, I support. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that in theory. You yeah. know, I'm, I'm for like total denuclearization around the world, but it's, yeah. Yes. Yeah. But I would add, though, that this is not an impediment to negotiation, that we have a goal and the North Koreans have a different goal. That's sort of what negotiation is about. And even if the North Koreans agreed tomorrow that they were going to denuclearize, it would take a decade to make that happen. And I can tell you in any scenario that ends with denuclearization, it starts with a freeze. It starts with a freeze on missile and nuclear tests and, you know, other actions, compensatory actions by the United States and its allies. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think we have to, it is neither uh, possible to jump to denuclearization, nor is it uh, required in order to make diplomatic progress where you create a more stable situation and where each side starts to step down. Well, and, and what you're suggesting or what you're describing seems to be closer to the Chinese position, which is the suspension for suspension idea, right? Where um, North Korea comes, you know, down its new, its, its, its missile launches and tests in the United States, um, you know, calms down its, its, um, Exercise. Military exercises yeah. in, in the region. And this is something that the Chinese have been pushing for a while, but so far the United States has resisted. Yes. Um, a, a couple of things. One, actually, that was a North Korean proposal back in 2015 by okay. uh, the young Kim. And President Obama responded to that offer by saying, well, you're going to have to do better than that. You know what that sounds like? That sounds like a negotiation. <laughs> of course. No one walked. No, you should never enter a negotiation thinking your opening position is going to be what the final agreement looks like. I mean, that's just negotiations 101. And uh, right now, what we have is a precondition. We want the North Koreans to do everything. We want them to uh, jump to the end and denuclearize before they sit down and talk with us. Uh, of course, if they do that, there's really no reason to talk since that's the point of the negotiation. So I don't think that makes a lot of sense. Mm -hmm. I think both sides now are in this, well, I'll sit down if you do X, Y, and Z, and only if you do X, Y, and Z. And this is a typical of these sorts of problems. But I think history demonstrates that the only negotiations that really get off the ground or most likely to get off the ground are ones in which all the parties sit down to talk to each other without precondition. We don't require that they use certain words and they don't put require that we use certain words and people say what they have to say and they talk back and forth and they see well, you know what happens from there that's how negotiation works so so the u.s should drop that precondition and and do what it, it can to get to the negotiating table is what you're saying well, i think it just should show up at the table and see who else shows up and if the north greens don't want to show up well that's their problem but it seems to me you you know I'm old school. You should hold your friends close and your enemies closer. 
And not only would negotiations provide a possibility, you know, modest, but nevertheless real possibility that we could at least get a freeze and a freeze would mean uh, in testing would mean that they would not for the time being develop a reentry vehicle. Uh, But the but the uh, negotiation has other uh, positive effects, even if you don't get the agreement you want. My view is the North Koreans over time are better behaved when they're in negotiations than whether than when they're on the outside throwing stones. And the biggest risk to war here is not that one side is going to wake up in the morning and decide uh, I'm going to launch a war. The way we get a war when no one wants war is miscalculation, misperception, small things that grow large and escalate. And the best way to uh, prevent that is to have direct communications. Um, on those lines, I mean, what role do you think the kind of bluster coming from the United States, coming from President Trump, is having on this situation? When, when you know, when you have those kinds of tweets and, and statements that that have been made, um, it seems to add a level of uncertainty and raise the potential for miscalculation. I think it does. I think it's an unbelievably, unbelievably bad idea. Uh, no president in U.S. history has behaved this way. It's You don't do nuclear doctrine on the fly without talking to your own cabinet members and staff or consulting your allies. Imagine you're the pres- President Moon in South Korea and you read in the press that the American president is threatening nuclear war. Um, yeah, I just don't know what to say about that. I have nothing positive to say about it, uh, and I'm trying to show some professional restraint. But I think it's really, really bad practice. And and, and it could go like this, just to give you two il- illustrations. One is, and they and this is what's happened in the near term, uh, uh, Mr. Trump bluffs, uh, and they call the bluff. So what happened most recently? Mr. Trump says, the president says, you better not threaten us, not attack us. You better not threaten us or we'll nuke you. That's what he said. Now, what did the North Koreans do within 24 hours? They issued new threats saying they would launch four missiles against Guam. So that's essentially calling his bluff. So they didn't believe the threat he was making. And and that's dangerous to principles of nuclear deterrence, right? You have to believe that you're going to follow through on a threat in order for the threats to work and deterrence to work. Yeah, and it leads to... uh, it increases the chance of uh, inadvertent war because what happens if we find ourselves in a situation a, a month or a year from now where the president wants to issue a threat and he wants that threat to be taken seriously. And let's say the North Koreans make a mistake and misinterpret that and think he's bluffing again. Uh, alternatively, he could make a threat that he didn't really intend on carrying out. And the North Koreans could overreact uh, thinking that the U.S. was coming after him in a preventive war. Well, that makes for an itchy trigger finger. Uh, the North Koreans have a very strong incentive to shoot first rather than second uh, because the U.S. and the South Koreans do pose overwhelming force. And if unless the, if the North Koreans may find themselves in a situation where they believe, wrongly or not, that they have to use what they have or they'll lose what they have. So you don't want to pressure small, weak states uh, into believing that they're on the verge of extinction. Uh, and that they should make you know decisions really quickly about whether to launch their weapons or not. And again, so there, there's just nothing good about this. None of this should be done in the public. It should all be done. It should be done with prudence and care and consistency. And it should be done through back channels 
not on Twitter. In the last minute or two, can I get your assessment of the latest round of Security Council sanctions that were levied on North Korea uh, earlier this month? Yeah, and I'd say my view of those is the same view I've had of the last three sets. It is true to say that in each of the last three occasions, each of those sanctions resolutions was the toughest sanctions resolution ever passed. Yes. That's everyone's, everyone's touted that from Nikki Haley to uh, you know Samantha Power before her. And it's true. These each round has been, uh, you know, achieved something new and different. And this last round, sort of ex- expanding the number of items that might be banned or con- con- uh, constrained for export, they're trying to reduce North Korea's uh, earnings. So I think, and China signed off on that. And I think that's a political or process victory. But the, and I'm a, as you know, I'm a skeptic about the sanctions. My colleague John Park and I. Yeah. John uh, over at Harvard interviewed North Korean defectors who whose job was to beat sanctions, and they told us how they did it. And that gives me not a lot of confidence that new sanctions are going to mm-hmm. somehow miraculously change what, uh, in ways that they haven't worked before. Uh, but I would say this, even if sanctions work, there's a basic policy disconnect here. And that is they can it, it obviously, and I underline obviously, they can build m- uh, missiles and test them faster than we can put on sanctions that might inhibit that. I mean, they're they're testing at a breakneck speed these days. So everything we've done might be hurting them, but it's a lot slower and a lot, you know, they're winning that race. If it's sanctions versus it's, if it's who can pass sanctions versus who can test missiles, uh, they're going to win. They've won that race and we are losing. So I don't have uh, much confidence in that as a, uh, foreign policy tool that somehow is going to fundamentally change the game in the near term. Is there any positive um, outcome of, of these sanctions? I mean, it seems at least one, it just demonstrates a, a level of international unity, uh, which is at least like, you know, uh, an important sort of show of, of, of force in, in a way. You know, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Always a skeptic <laughs> that, of the sanctions. Yeah, that and $3 will get you a cup of coffee. You know, yeah. so I think it's great that the international community is unified and they can pass yeah. sanctions resolutions. But if they're not enforced yeah. uh, or they don't work, you know, so what? I, I, I think we put an awful, awful lot of our policy uh, time and effort into sanctions. You know, if we put 90% of our effort into sanctions, and that's all we're getting for it. I would say that's not a good use of your policy resources. Uh, and I should direct people to read your uh, analysis with uh, with Park uh, on on the sort of sanctions and, and the failure of sanctions to dissuade North Korea, which is a great paper. Thank you. Um, good. Well, thank you so much, Jim. This was this was helpful as always. Uh, my pleasure. All right. See you soon. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Jim for speaking with me on short notice. And as I mentioned at the outset, you know, I didn't have an episode on Monday because I wanted to get this one in. I also had some technical issues with my conversation on Monday, which is a great one. I'm getting the audio cleaned up for you as we speak and should have that later this week or, or maybe next week. You know, we're kind of in that August slowdown. So I might just have one episode this week, but then we'll get back to regular programming in the very near future. Thank you all for listening. Thank you for your support. Huge thank you to premium subscribers. And hey, if you are a premium subscriber and you are have not yet received all of your rewards, including a complimentary subscription to Don's Digest or my knowledge pack, just send me an email and I will get you all sorted out. Thank you so much and see you soon. Bye.
The views and opinions expressed in the podcast are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the policies or positions of Humanity in Action.